Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the announcement today by the Pentagon of an ambitious new program to build and deploy within two years thousands of drones and robotic warfare platforms operating on AI that will counter China's defenses along its coasts and in the case of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, reduce the massive losses the U.S. would suffer in the air and at sea. Joining us to discuss the emergence of the digital military-industrial complex is Dan Grazier, a former Marine Corps captain who served tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan during the War on Terror. Previously, he worked as a television journalist in Maryland and Missouri, and he has written extensively and lectured on matters of military reform. He is a Senior Defense Policy Fellow at the Project on Government Oversight. Then we'll look further into the digital military-industrial complex as Silicon Valley meets the Pentagon and tech billionaires like Elon Musk, Peter Thiel and Mark Andreessen make billions out of new tech startups with contracts to manufacture and deploy thousands of robotic weapons operating on AI. Joining us is Eugene Goltz, a professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. His work focuses on the intersection of national security and economic policy, on subjects including innovation, defense management, and U.S. grant strategy. From 2010 to 2012, he served in the Pentagon as a senior advisor to the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Manufacturing and Industrial Base Policy, and he's the co-author of two books, Buying Military Transformation, Technological Innovation, and The Defense Industry and U.S. Defense Politics, The Origins of Security Policy. Then finally, we'll look into the remarks by Pope Francis that conservative U.S. Catholics have replaced faith with ideology, saying that there is, quote, a very strong organized reactionary attitude in the U.S. Church. Joining us is Francis Kissling, the president of the Center for Health, Ethics and Social Policy and teaches at the National Autonomous University of Mexico and serves on the board of the Journal of Feminist Ethics and was the president of Catholics for Choice for 25 years, stepping down in 2007 when she became a Radcliffe Fellow at Harvard. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, background briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now, Dan Grazier, who's a former Marine Corps captain who served tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan during the War on Terror. Previously, he worked as a television journalist in Maryland and Missouri. And he's a Senior Defense Policy Fellow at the Project on Government Oversight. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dan Grazier. Hey, thank you, Ian, for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And what do you make of the announcement today about this new ambitious Pentagon project called Replicator, which is designed uh, to, they're going to field thousands of autonomous systems, robotics and AI systems, within two years in an attempt to basically curtail China's defense, which is lines its coast and its artificial islands with more than thousand with thousands of anti-ship and anti-aircraft missiles, which would, if there were a war between the United States and China, it would be very costly for the U.S., particularly in terms of an invasion of Taiwan. So the idea then is to replace <laughs> Uh, U.S. systems with robotic systems and field them very quickly. And it's pretty clear that it's related to Chinese threats to take Taiwan militarily. So is this an example of what some are calling the digital industrial complex? Because these new systems are coming out of essentially moguls in Silicon Valley like Peter Thiel, Mark Andreessen, and Elon Musk. Well, this uh, program certainly fits that fits that pattern, uh, and the the speed with which they're doing this certainly fits 
within a lot of the, the thinking currently in national security circles in, in Washington, uh, the idea that you can use other transaction authorities, you know, to kind of do an end run around the traditional major defense acquisition program process uh, to rapidly funnel money from the treasury to the defense industry before anybody really has a chance to understand and, and really evaluate the equipment that the services want to buy. So there's a, there's, there's a, a number of, there's a number of concerns here. The, the China angle is a, you know, certainly another one. Uh, the, the China threat, um, you know, the, the potential invasion of Taiwan by, by China is uh, really drives almost every decision about national security matters uh, right now. And, you know, it remains to be seen if that's actually, uh, if we're actually looking at the right, uh, at the right scenario. Well, recently, and uh, I think it was a three or four star Air Force general said that war with China is all but inevitable. Well, yeah, there's uh, you know, certainly Australians uh, think along those lines, or at least a lot of them do. And, and there's plenty of people here in the United States uh, who who make the same argument. There was that that memo that came out from the the commander of the um, you know, transportation command. Uh, saying that he expects us to be in a war with with China within the next like two or three years, um, but it it still remains to be seen if that's the if that's the case. I I I believe that uh, such a scenario is pretty unlikely. Uh, you know, both China and the United States have nuclear weapons, so that does a pretty good job of of uh, calming tensions. Uh, there's a reason why the Cold War never really went hot uh, between the United States and the Soviet Union. I think a lot of the same. Is going to uh, apply to the to the situation with China today, uh, and even more so because we have such an interconnected economy. So any any kind of a, a war scenario between the United States and China uh, would hurt the Chinese even more than the United States would from an economic standpoint. So I think uh, uh, I have I have new illusions that uh, you know I don't think the Chinese are our friends exactly. Um, I you know and I take them at their word that they want to remake China uh, by bringing Taiwan back in the fold, but I doubt very much that they're going to use military means to accomplish that. I think they're going to use all kinds of uh, other economic, uh, diplomatic, and uh, political uh, means to, to bring about that result. Um, but here we are spending upwards of $850 billion a year building a military designed uh, specifically to defend an island, island that isn't even uh, part of the United States. So when you mentioned, Dan, uh, the Cold War with Russia, how we never had a hot war because it would be a war without winners and both sides would be destroyed, uh, that did not mean that there were some near misses, a lot to do with technology, Russian air defenses, the Crocus and Kasbah systems, seeing what was light refracting off clouds, which they thought was a were five Minutemen uh, incoming missiles. This has happened in October of 83. And they their sort of dead hand system was basically going to just launch the entire ICBM fleet at the United States in a massive counter-strike. And it was overridden by an officer, a Soviet officer, who overrode the automated system by because he thought that if the U.S. was going to do a first strike on them, they wouldn't just fire five Minutemen, they'd fire a hell of a lot more. And thus the world was saved from nuclear war. So if you're going to have thousands of robotic drones, etc., flying up and down the coast of China with AI driving them, is there a chance of something going wrong? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, and I've been uh, particularly vocal about um, urging caution with the development of these kind of, these kind of systems. The, the example with the Soviets in 1983 is a really good one, uh, but the importance of having human beings um, you know, in, the, in the decision loop, uh, because you know, a machine is only as good as its programming, uh, and uh, it is, uh, they, they aren't very good at that kind of uh, you know instinctual uh, judgment that a that a human being will have. So yeah, I definitely am concerned that you know having thousands of of unmanned systems uh, operating you know not just uh, you know flying along the coast but operating you know on the on the sea surface, undersea, you know all those kind of things could potentially uh, create 
those kind of flashpoints um, that that could lead to could lead to war. So yeah, we absolutely need to be very cautious with um, you know not just the systems that we buy, but what we are communicating uh, in the process of buying them. So you know specifically uh, mentioning China in in the announcement for for something like this, uh, you know, by itself is pretty provocative, and it certainly makes the the Chinese a lot more cautious about our intentions, uh, and can absolutely inflame inflame passions and intentions, uh, which, you know, could always uh, morph into a scenario that, that nobody anticipated. So, yeah, caution should rule the day, uh, which is another reason why I think it's important to make sure that, that whatever we're buying uh, under this uh, replicator program uh, is very carefully vetted uh, and evaluated, uh, particularly in, through uh, rigorous testing before they're fielded, just to make sure that we have something that uh, isn't going to, um, you know, create more problems than it's designed to solve. So, Dan Grazier, at the project on government oversight, you've done a lot of work on the F-35 fighter, which costs $80 million a unit. And it's one of the, I think it's the biggest defense project in history. And it's been fraught with over, cost overruns and problems. And... It's the sort of poster boy for the military-industrial complex notion that instead of building a Timex, they build a Rolex. And curiously enough, it has led to this new project that that was announced today because they figure, well, it's cheaper to make drones and other robotic uh, weapons with AI than to have these human-controlled weapons like the F-35 because they're so damn expensive, it has resulted in the fact that the United States Air Force now has the smallest and oldest fleet in its history. Right. There's a, there's a couple ways to look at this, actually. Like, one, uh, announcing that we're going to you know, buy thousands of, uh, quote-unquote, attributable uh, autonomous weapons um, is, is in its own way an acknowledgement that the F-35 isn't as survivable as, as Lockheed Martin and all their allies in the Pentagon are saying it is. Uh, so, because you know, the, the F-35, like systems like the F-35 and, and now the, the B-21, uh, you know, they're all sold with, you know, under the idea that uh, they can penetrate this kind of heavily defended airspace. And so, uh, you know, having the Pentagon buy a bunch of uh, unmanned weapon systems that are meant to operate in that space uh, is, is a signal that they aren't, uh, <laughs> that the Lockheed Martin officials and the Pentagon officials aren't uh, so confident about the survivability of their manned systems. Um, but the, you know, beyond that, the F-35 uh, is, you're right, it is the poster boy for a lot of the, you know, the pathologies uh, that exist in, in the way that we buy weapon systems. Um, you know, it was, it, it was really kind of started in haste, uh, and there was a lot of money that was poured into the program before anybody had any real idea what, uh, what they had. Uh, and by the time anybody had, had a real idea of the inherent problems with the program, uh, it was already too far down, uh, you know, away from the station for anybody to really stop it effectively. And so that's why I'm a little concerned with this replicator program, because uh, they're talking about fielding these things within two years. Uh, no one's going to have any real idea what these things are um, by that point. And, you know, by that point, it might, be, it might be too late for us to really stop it because so much money has already been spent on it. So, again, I, I urge caution, uh, and, and, I, and it's my earnest desire that uh, people really pay attention uh, to make sure that that American tax dollars is being spent properly on things that are that are going to be effective in the in the long run, uh, rather than wasted on a bunch of uh, ill-conceived programs that are going to end up being more of a burden than they are a help. Right, and and the history of the F-35 is not unlike the history of the Osprey, and we just had a lot loss of a number of Marines off the north of Australia. And there's periodically been that, those, that aircraft's been crashing and it had massive cost overruns. But when you talk about the money flowing, you know, where Silicon Valley meets the Pentagon, these are new players. The Elon Musks who own SpaceX out 
and the New Yorker recently revealed that uh, the Pentagon's, you know, afraid of that this one man, uh, you know, is <laughs> who takes so many drugs he would never be able to have a security clearance and is essentially a right-wing troll, having turned Twitter into X and along with Peter Thiel, they're so-called libertarians, but they're getting massive government contracts. And, you know, they're new players, and we have a history of of characters like Howard Hughes, etc., that have given the Pentagon headaches. But I think this is a whole new thing, and I don't know that the Pentagon really is deferring to people that they don't know much about. Well, that's, that's certainly a problem, and that's a that's a part of a, a larger problem with uh, defense industry consolidation in general. Uh, you know, we used to have uh, dozens and dozens of, of prime military contractors, you know, right up through the early 1990s. But then uh, in 1993, the Secretary of Defense, Bill Perry, gathered all the, the big uh, defense industry executives in Washington uh, to a dinner. It's uh, now referred to as the Last Supper, uh, where he basically told all of them that they need to consolidate or perish. And uh, so that leads to these kind of situations where you do just have a couple of companies that control massive sectors, uh, massive massive segments of the of the defense industry, and uh, and the government finds itself at a at a disadvantage because. Who else are they going to go to for specific capabilities? And you know that that, that creates all kinds of problems. Like if there's a if there's a bad idea uh, in I don't know, let's just say fighter planes. Uh, you know, considering that the two most recent fighter programs uh, both came out of Lockheed Martin. Uh, if you have uh, some basic conceptual flaws in one program, it's probably going to be carried over to the other one, and you don't have any other competitors that can that can kind of break through that. Uh, and it also means that uh, the, these companies have the government over a barrel as far as contract negotiations go, because, again, the government contracting officials don't have anybody else to turn to for a lot of these capabilities. So, yeah, it's important that, um, you know, these companies are vetted. It's important that, uh, you know, that some of the, the contracting dollars are, are, are spread around to other companies just to make sure that, uh, we are we have some options uh, moving forward uh, because we're going to quickly find ourselves in a position where um, there there are only these two or three very powerful individuals that we're going to be able to go to. But in terms of having the Pentagon over a barrel, I mean Elon Musk, who's a, it has a private company SpaceX, which essentially has the entire country of Ukraine over a barrel. And this is not theoretical. They're actually in a really bloody war, an existential struggle to save their country from Russian aggression. And uh, he, at one point, turned off their, their only source of uh, satellite and, and internet information, which is what they entirely depend on to run the war. So there's a pretty extraordinary example of, not, of, a, of one man having an entire country's fate in his hands. Yep, that is uh, that is a good example, and that is why we need uh, we need a, a robust base for these kind of services, just to make sure that that no single individual does have that kind of uh, that kind of power and authority. And just looking ahead, then to the replicator program, the idea that a ton of money, we don't know how much, and we don't know much about the project. Obviously, most of it's classified, but it's going to. We're going to create thousands of these these robotic vehicles in the next couple of years and deploy them. What's your sense then, Dan, in the last minute of what kind of control we have? You know, you know, you're a Pentagon watchdog. What tools do you have? Well, uh, you know, the the congressional uh, defense committees can, uh, you know, they can certainly send their uh, there are people around to make sure that, that tax dollars are being spent properly. There are a couple of, of oversight agencies, the, uh, specifically the Director of Operational Test and Evaluation. Uh, I hope that that office is being brought in uh, today, actually, to start really looking at, uh, at these proposals because their evaluators can provide a lot of uh, guardrails um, if, uh, if they're listened to. That's the, that's the, the, the big crux of the matter. Um, but uh, you know, beyond that, it's uh, it really comes down to 
the judgment of the you know senior defense civilian defense officials um, at the Pentagon, making sure that the deals they're striking uh, do actually meet the needs of of uh, the troops out there. Um, and so we gotta we'll, we'll certainly be keeping an eye on things, making sure that that this works out the way it's supposed to. Uh, and I'll be highlighting screaming from the mountaintops if I see anything that's untoward. Okay. Well, Dan Grazie, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Dan Grazie, a former Marine Corps captain who served tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan during the War on Terror. Previously, he worked as a television journalist in Maryland and Missouri and has written extensively and lectured on matters of military reform. And he is the Senior Defense Policy Fellow at the Project on Government Oversight. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking further into the digital military-industrial complex as Silicon Valley meets the Pentagon and tech billionaires like Elon Musk, Peter Thiel and Mark Andreessen make billions out of new tech startups with contracts to manufacture and deploy thousands of robotic weapons operating on AI. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Eugene Goltz, who's a professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. His work focuses on the intersection of national security and economic policy on subjects including innovation, defense management, and U.S. grand strategy. From 2010 to 2012, he served in the Pentagon as a senior advisor to the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Manufacturing and Industrial Base Policy. And he is co-author of two books, Buying Military Transformation, Technological Innovation and the Defense Industry, and U.S. Defense Politics, the Origins of Security Policy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Eugene Goltz. Thank you much. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And today, the Pentagon announced an ambitious new program called Replicator. It's spearheaded by Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks, and it is an attempt to neutralize China's coastal defenses, which are apparently formidable with anti-aircraft and anti-ship missiles. But they're going to be using AI and robotics and drones, and they're going to build, fill thousands and thousands of these autonomous systems within two years. So is this what some are calling the new digital military-industrial complex? Well, it is significant initiative to use digital technologies to conduct traditional military missions, right? So it's, it's as you said, it's about um, penetrating Chinese defenses. So this is about, um, you know, harnessing artificial intelligence in a way to thwart other countries' ability to defend themselves from the United States. So it's, it's an interesting uh, spin. But the idea that we would use digital technology and weapon systems, you know, by itself, that's not new. What people mean by the military industrial complex usually is a close relationship between the Department of Defense and um, certain major private companies that can form a political alliance and uh, maybe steer American policy in a particular direction. And the digital companies, the the headline people like, you know, Elon Musk or Alex Carpet Palantir or um, uh, some others, um, aren't the traditional military industrial complex, which is why people are using a new phrase. The the political attractiveness of AI um, is now being used by the Department of Defense uh, as part of its narrative as part of its argument for a set of new initiatives and uh, uh, not a huge amount of new spending relative to the 800 billion dollars of spending that we spend on defense every year but 
you know, as you said, they're talking about building thousands of of uh, military combat vehicles and other types of vehicles and, and spending, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars at least. So this then is happening at the same time that that a New Yorker article revealed concerns within the Pentagon itself over its lack of control over Elon Musk, who is a sole owner of a private company, SpaceX, which NASA basically depends upon 100% almost. And uh, there's a concern that he holds the fate of Ukraine in his hands with Starlink, which is the satellite system and internet system that the Ukrainian military depends entirely upon because its infrastructure, previous infrastructure was destroyed by the Russians. So that article raises concerns about this kind of quixotic character who does a lot of drugs and seems to have turned himself into a right-wing troll with Twitter now X. I mean, I know that we, in the past there have been people like Howard Hughes and others that have been difficult, but this article more or less indicates that the Pentagon doesn't have a lot of control over Elon Musk. So if this new digital military industrial complex is going to be the main contractors are Peter Thiel and and his friend Elon Musk, that raises some serious questions, doesn't it? It could. Um, I mean, there's always a balance in the relationship between the defense industry and the government. And they, on some things, they cooperate, and on some things, they disagree, right? That all else equal, the defense industry likes high prices and the government likes low prices, for example. Like, they're not always on the same team. And that's potentially, you know, this New Yorker article raised concerns about kind of the independent foreign policy capabilities of Elon Musk, right? Like the government can't necessarily do everything that it wants without Elon Musk's cooperation. And um, maybe, um, you know, the government can do a lot to make Elon Musk's life miserable and can pay him a lot to be on side with what the government wants. Like they can cooperate and the government has leverage. But it is true, particularly with certain kinds of defense equipment, you know, comparing Elon Musk to Howard Hughes. And, you know, in the old days, the defense industry got a pretty substantial vote about offering products to the Department of Defense, which the Department of Defense could then buy or not buy. And it wasn't always clear that the department could entirely guide the industry in the direction of what the government wanted. Sometimes the industry guided the government and said, we want to sell you this. And that was the concern. But once the government owned the technology, owned the weapons, the government got to decide where to use them, how to fight with them. And sure, there were issues of maintenance and you had to keep working with the contractors over time. So it was a balanced relationship, but the government seemed to have the lead a lot of the time, but with with services like internet service, um, the government doesn't just buy it once. Like you have to buy it all the time to keep the service turned on. And in principle, maybe Elon Musk could say, "I don't want the contract from the government anymore. I'll give up. You know, I'm not. I'm going to turn off the service to Ukraine." And you know, the government couldn't. The 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 contractor couldn't turn off the airplane before. But maybe the digital contractors have a little bit more leverage or the digital contractors have a little bit better understanding of the complex algorithms that they're offering. So maybe the government has trouble engaging in full oversight of artificial intelligence. And, you know, these are initiatives that the Pentagon is or I should say the Pentagon is taking a lot of initiatives to try to establish rules of the road and oversight for how AI is going to be used. And there are questions about whether they can effectively do that. And there are also questions about whether, you know, there might be agreement that the Pentagon might find interest in agreeing to things from the contractors because the contractors have a certain prestige. The digital contractors have a certain prestige that helps the Pentagon you know, achieve its goals and whether all of those things, if they were fully understood by the American public, would be thing would be goals that the American public shared. That's a little bit less clear some of the time. But there's a general sense that that Musk and, and the Silicon Valley people are ahead of the curve, if you will. And apparently these new drones that are robotic 
with AI, the AI comes from Mark Andreessen. He has stakes in all of in both in Teal and and Musk. So you've got Musk and Teal and Andreessen, and you mentioned the other guy from Palantir, which Palantir is Park. which yeah. is mainly owned by Teal as well. Mm-hmm. And they do work for the CIA, but nobody quite knows what they do. So there's a mystique about them, isn't there? So yes. you think the Pentagon is sufficiently sophisticated? In other words, is the Pentagon playing catch-up to Silicon Valley? Well, I mean, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no, right? I mean, the the um, there's certainly a mystique about Silicon Valley, and the Pentagon has actually been trying to tap that mystique because lots of Americans think, you know, the Pentagon is filled with dunderheaded bureaucrats and is slow moving and is behind on technology. And so, you know, the, the Pentagon has lost some of its prestige as the, you know, technological leader and great defenders of America, and they want to get that back. And so they want to cooperate with Silicon Valley because Silicon Valley has that mystique. And that helps people see, oh, yes, it makes sense to give money to the Pentagon, or it makes sense to to do what to, to accept the Pentagon's proposals for what's good for the United States, because they've got a little bit of that connection to, you know, the, these, these um, great, innovative, entrepreneurial, prestigious Americans. And, um, and so it's, you know, it's useful to both, to both sides to, to work together. Um, but, you know, <laughs> um, ultimately, the Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, I mean, a lot of them, um, uh, one of the other criticisms of them is that they're not committed to national defense. They're just committed to the next great app or to bigger advertising sales through their platforms or whatever it might be. And, um, you know, their interest in national defense might not be the national interest in national defense at all times. And that's why it's pretty important to have a balanced cooperation between, you know, the elected and appointed representatives of the American people and these contractors in Silicon Valley. I mean, that's the good spin on the military industrial complex is they each bring something to the table. And um, and the outcome of that is, you know, leading national defense for the United States. I, I mean, I think the risk that President Eisenhower identified of, you know, unwarranted influence of the private entrepreneurs or the private contractors is that maybe the elected representatives and certainly the American people may not always understand what's being done supposedly on their behalf. And so, you know, you want to make sure that we're having a robust national conversation about the appropriate role and about the appropriate goals. Like, should we be using AI to develop robotic weapons with the goal of penetrating Chinese airspace, right, to be able to attack China? Or should we be focusing on using AI to defend our friends? And what's the relationship between going on the offense and going on the defense? Like, that seems like a real that's not a technical question entirely. I mean, there's some technical aspect, but a lot of that is what are America's goals and how do you involve the people, not just the companies in deciding those goals? So just in the last few minutes then, Eugene, I mean, it's pretty clear that it is the former, that they're building systems to attack Chinese missile defenses as opposed to defend, say, Taiwan. And they're going to do it pretty quickly. They're talking about trying to... The Pentagon's making this bet that it can feel thousands of these automated robotic systems with AI, drones, etc., to counter China's huge stockpile of traditional weapons, you know, like anti-aircraft and anti-ship missiles, which ring along the coast and, and also in these new artificial islands that they created. So that seems to be the mission here. It's not about defending Taiwan. So if you've got thousands of these robotic drones up up and down the Chinese coast, it's a scary prospect. It's sort of, if you go right. back to that movie, 2001, where Hal, where the computer takes over, I mean... Sure. <laughs> I, right. Just one of these drones going AWOL and off the reservation, uh, you could have World War Three. Right. There's there's a lot of 
Um, I mean, there's a lot of fear or critics, uh, including from within the AI community about, you know, how well can we regulate and understand the future of AI? Could AI make choices that we wouldn't make? I'll just say at this point, the details of the replicator initiative um, uh, coming out of the Pentagon, they say, look, we're going to tell you more about this in the future. A lot of it's classified. Um, you could imagine using AI uh, for defenses, making it very useful, say, to improve um, missile, anti-aircraft and anti-ship defense of Taiwan. Um, using artificial intelligence to kind of keep the defense systems alive in the face of Chinese attacks, as opposed to using artificial intelligence to find ways to penetrate Chinese airspace and attack Chinese systems in China, right? So there's nothing about AI itself that has to be algorithms written for the offense. And you could imagine a big Pentagon initiative like this you know, making a big difference to improve the defensibility of Taiwan or Japan or even the United States itself. And, you know, the question is, um, who's going to make the decisions about what kind of AI to deploy? And are those the decisions that the American people would want to make? Um, or are those decisions that are being made, you know, behind closed doors between what you called the digital and military industrial complex between a few elite billionaires and a few Pentagon leaders who, because of the aura of technological success and entrepreneurship, you know, might not be questioned in the national debate as much as they should be about, um, you know, what are the goals of our defense policies and investments. So if this announcement today, which was before the National Defense Industrial Association's Emerging Technologies for Defense Conference, right. and most of its use, the details are classified, how can the public uh, weigh in and have a voice in this if they don't know what's going on? Well, I mean, President Eisenhower a long time ago talked about the importance of a, a watchful and educated, educated citizenry that that, you know, he was sort of right that in the Cold War, there was a lot of spending and sometimes we did more aggressive things and sometimes less aggressive things. But things never got completely out of hand because we had debates about you know, what the appropriate goals and were and how much risk we should take of different kinds of risk. And we can still have those debates, just as in the Cold War, we had the debates about what our defense policy should be or how offensive our defense policy should be. You don't need the technical details for citizens and their representatives to discuss those issues. And then those issues in our system have to be used as a guide by the policymakers. And, you know, Kath Hicks, as the Deputy Secretary of Defense, is she's not looking to, you know, run away from the American people or subvert American democracy. Like she's she's, um, you know, completely in line with being responsive. She's just looking to lead the public in certain directions. And the public is entitled to push back. And she and the other leadership right up to President Biden you know, have to respect the public conversation. Like that's that's the jobs that they're in. And, you know, I believe that that's how our government works. Our government our government takes those views seriously if we have a national conversation. Well, Eugene Galt, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Absolutely. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Eugene Goltz, who's a professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. His work focuses on the intersection of national security and economic policy on subjects including innovation, defense management, and U.S. grand strategy. From 2010 to 2012, he served in the Pentagon as a senior advisor to the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Manufacturing and Industrial-Based Policy. And he is the co-author of two books, Buying Military Transformation, Technological Innovation and the Defense Industry, and U.S. Defense Politics, The Origins of Security Policy. 
We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into remarks by Pope Francis that conservative U.S. Catholics have replaced faith with ideology, saying that there is, quote, a very strong organized reactionary attitude in the U.S. church. Megadel, cyberpunk technology, such as cyberbots, check the rhymes, I can cock private stock. While you jock, I said I'm ultra security for MC intelligence who want to murder me. It's like the third degree, the way I question my sanity. I work on cybernetics as a form of vanity. To protect my circuitry, I stay under the canopy. I sit for special chips to finish my fantasy. To become a bionic commando, monitor scandals, solar panels reflect, energy enters me. If this energy in the 21st century, solar and temporary Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org and joining us now is Francis Kissling, the President of the Centre for Health and Ethics and Social Policy who teaches at the National Autonomous University of Mexico and serves on the board of the Journal of Feminist Ethics. She was the President of Catholics for Choice for over 25 years, stepping down in 2007 when she became a Radcliffe Fellow at Harvard. Welcome to Background Briefing, Francis Kissling. Great to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Francis. And what do you make of Pope Francis saying that conservative Catholics have replaced faith with ideologies, with ideology? And then he went on to say that there is a very strong organized reactionary attitude in the U.S. church. Now, I know that's not news to you, but it is pretty extraordinary that the head and the leader of the Catholic Church would come out with such a statement. Um, yes, although it's not the first time that he has, um, in a sense, responded to conservative Catholics in the U.S. who um, who are who you know continuously have challenged him on a whole range of issues, climate change, um, you know, and and other other issues as well. Um, and uh, I think it's, I've always been surprised that he has been as assertive as he has in basically pushing back with them, um, but, and, and I'm appreciative that he does so. So apparently these statements came up in an interview that Pope Francis did in Portugal where he's visiting Lisbon on August the 5th, right. and he was speaking to the Jesuit journal Las Civilta Catholica, and he uh, talked to this Portuguese Jesuit uh, right. who, brought, who brought up the fact that Francis has been very heavily criticized by U.S. bishops during his 10-year papacy. So that's what prompted it. So what is exactly do, the, do these U.S. bishops have? What's their problem? Isn't it mostly to do with abortion? I mean, that's their obsession. But they don't like the fact that the Pope talks about global warming and wanting to preserve the environment right. and also talks about social justice and wanting to minister to the poor, which I thought was the the whole point of the teachings of the prophet Jesus. Yes, and um, I mean, obviously, not all of the U.S. bishops are conservative, but the ones who are conservative have been very assertive in terms of criticizing um, criticizing the Pope. Um, and um, you know, he just he just he, also on women's issues. I mean, he has he's been pretty good on women's issues. He's added women to the synod that's coming up, and. Um, and and um, recently, one of the things he said quite recently was he was talking about abortion, and he said that, um, of course, human life must be protected from its beginnings, but he went on to say that we don't know when the fetus becomes a person. Um, and and also, I mean, on the abortion, I think on the abortion issue that the conservatives are particularly incensed by him um, because he has taken a pastoral approach to the issue. You know, he's talked about, no, women do not get excommunicated for having abortions, that um, we should take a pastoral approach, not a political approach to the issue of abortion. So um, in general, they have a lot, they have a lot that they disagree with um, the Pope on, but um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I, you know, I have mixed feelings about the Pope. I've mixed, fe- I would have mixed feelings about any Pope. Um, 
But, um, you know, once you're a pope, some things do change. But, you know, Francis has has uh, been pretty outspoken on a number of issues um, that go against the conservative line. Um, you know, he said, uh, he also said about uh, the conservative bishops in the United States that um, he considers it an honor to be criticized by them. Hmm. Well... They certainly have a lot of power and influence, do they not, on the Supreme Court, where they just overturned Roe v. Wade, and there's, what, the sixth majority, I mean, I guess, technically, Gorsuch is an Episcopalian, although he grew up Catholic, but there's no question about his conservatism, and he voted to strike down the Dobbs decision, and when you talk about the Pope not being able to say when a fetus becomes person thanks to to the supreme court the states are passing laws where they the fetus becomes a person at six weeks and at yes. six weeks a lot of women don't even know they're pregnant yes absolutely and and even some states have gone so far as to ban ban abortion completely so um you know certainly uh in that context I mean, you know, one of the problems is that some of these statements by the, by the Pope never go anywhere. In other words, you don't read them at all. You, nobody, you know, very few people see them. So there continues to be um, a large-scale misunderstanding, um, most, more among non-Catholics than Catholics, about what the Catholic position on abortion is. And I think what disturbs the conservative bishops in the United States is that, uh, that um, on the abortion issue, while I disagree with him, um, he, he, he's more honest. You know, as I said, he says, we don't know when the fetus becomes a person. Um, and, and that in and of itself um, drives the bishops crazy. I remember years ago when Cardinal O'Connor was alive, um, he made the statement that the most dangerous place for, um, the most dangerous place for children is in the wombs of women, you know. So, you know, this is this this conservatism among the bishops is not new. Um, although I think that you're you're mentioning the number of Catholics on the Supreme Court um, gives a sense of the increasing trend towards conservatism um, within within the Catholic Church. Right, but there's also Sotomayor is a Catholic, but she's not right. like the others. I mean, there, isn't this the division in the Catholic Church, the, you know, the progressives and the reactionaries, and the Pope is exactly. pointing his finger at the reactionaries and basically That's saying right. they're backward, and they That's are backward. Right. And they are backward, and, and in a sense, this Pope gives credence to the argument that the church is not monolistic on many of these issues and he and the pope has said that you know in addition to to criticizing the conservatives um he acknowledges that there is a diversity of opinion and when he says that conservative bishops in america and he singles out america not latin america not europe conservative bishops particularly in america follow ideology rather than faith um, he is undercutting the, the, those conservative bishops in America. Well, the Pope says that the conservative bishops in America are off base, and the conservative bishops don't like that. Well, he went on to say that, to quote, the vision of the doctrine of the church as a monolith is wrong. When you go backward, you make something closed off, disconnected from the roots of the church, which then has a devastating effect on morality. So, yes, and, yes, yes. And, and that is such a um, refreshing argument from a pope. I mean, that a pope would... I mean, look, basically the pope says what I say. He says what, what, what liberal Catholics, what feminist Catholics... Have said for said have said exactly those same things for a long time. We're the people who have said. I mean, you know, I was involved in 
the publication at the time of Geraldine Ferraro um, running for for vice president, I was of the I I, I helped publish a full page ad in the New York Times that says there is a legitimate diversity of opinion within the Catholic Church on abortion. At that time. There was no pope who would have agreed with with that statement. So now, to some extent, um, those of us who are Catholics and who are for contraception, for women's ordination, for a woman's right to decide on abortion, are more in line with the pope than our Catholic bishops are. And, of course, back then you had uh, the Polish pope followed by... Ratzinger. Ratzinger, Cardinal Ratzinger, another reactionary. So, right. this current pope is quite a departure. Quite a departure, and and a very hopeful um, departure. In you know, in in that sense, I mean, it is when you think of it, when you look at what the papacy was like under Ratzinger, under John Paul II, under the Polish Pope, um, and you look at what this pope is saying. Um, you can see the the you know um, a, a, an enormous change. Um, not that the Pope holds, not that this Pope holds any positions that are truly radical. I mean, he thinks abortion is wrong. He thinks the fetus has a right to life from the moment of conception. But he is honest about the fact that the Church is not a monolith. Well, unfortunately, these reactionaries, which are both in the Catholic Church and on the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. um, and amongst the evangelicals, Protestant evangelicals, they're right. busy at work. They're not satisfied with having struck down uh, a woman's right to a bodily autonomy and um, reproductive rights. They want to go after contraception now. And those yes. cases are before the Fifth Circuit Appeals Court, and there's some alarming signals, and we know about the judge in Amarillo, Texas, uh, who's a complete anti-abortion nut, and yet he's able to shut, or trying to shut down the medication abortion. This is what I don't understand, Francis. If they're against abortion, why would you then shut down contraception? Because you make abortion more necessary, and more likely, and more plentiful. If you don't well, that, allow people a, contraception, yes, that's that. That of course is the very logical argument to be made. Um, and uh, but you know we're, what we're dealing with is they not they not only want to shut down contraception, um, and and um, but that you know like what 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 is on on the in the cards right now, given the Supreme Court decision on Roe, is also um, no in vitro fertilization. No stem cell research. I mean, we, we, are, we are, in terms of America, we are the United States, we are going on these issues of reproduction um, in a radically conservative, prohibitive way. I mean, you know that we have cases now, even, even you know, like what, what I often say now is if a woman goes into a hospital, any hospital, not just a Catholic hospital, and she is suffering from an ectopic pregnancy, for example. Um, she is 13 years old and has been raped. The first thing the hospital does is not take care of her. They call their lawyer and ask the lawyer, can we perform this procedure? And where you have things like heartbeat laws and things like that, the, the lawyer says, no, you have to wait until... The woman is on death's door in order in order to perform any anything like this. But I also think that one of the things that is happening is, and I've seen this with any number of people I know who um, have called themselves pro-life up to now, is that there is a backlash to this kind of, of radical prohibitory behavior on the part of um, the, the Supreme Court and on the part of hospitals and some doctors and members of Congress and state legislators, there is a backlash. And those people are saying to me and saying publicly, this is not what I meant by pro-life. 
I may be opposed to later abortions. I may be, uh, you know, I may have my, I may have limits, uh, more limits than my colleagues who are pro-choice have. But I never expected that it would go this far. And you know, I mean, that's a hopeful sign in 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 the face of a very of a very uh, dark time uh, around reproduction and women's rights. So, Francis, they're do you having th- a hard time defending themselves. They really are having a hard time defending themselves. Yeah, but they do. They have the power of the Supreme Court. They have they've power. got they've got the yeah. six to three majority, and and they've got that majority because of one man, Leonard Leo, who's this Opus Dei reactionary. Uh, who yes. specializes in dark money, he's got billions at his disposal. And by the way, yes. this crazy guy that we just saw on the Republican debate, Ramaswamy, I mean, he's not crazy. He's cynical and deceptive and, and dangerous. But he's also a part of uh, Leonard Leo's network with backing from Peter Thiel and these Silicon Valley right-wing trolls. So... Yes. The, yeah, and do you think that, but also, also in, the, in addition to that, you know, we can't forget that Donald Trump and Leonard Leo, Leo Leonard, are um, are in cahoots as well. Well, that's how we got and the six to three majority. That's how we. That's how it's Donald Trump gave us this this Supreme Court. Right. Well, he just followed Leonard Leo's dictum. You know, gave him yeah. a list, and he, it's not just the Supreme Court; it's the entire federal judiciary that's got these right-wing, unqualified federalists, like the right. judge down in Florida that's now trying Trump's documents case. Exactly. But when the Pope's referring to Catholic reactionaries in this country, that they've replaced faith with ideology, is he referring to? Stephen Bannon and Leonard Leo and company and the Supreme yes. Court, the six yes, of course he is. justices. Well, he is, but he has more interest, really, in conservative bishops than he has in uh, the, the Catholic conservative uh, layperson. I mean, you know, he, he is facing, the, church, the, the institution is facing a, um, a, a, uh, a fight between conservative Catholic bishops, most of, more of whom are in the United States than anywhere else, which is why he's pointing out the United States bishops. But, you know, he faces pressure from those bishops, and, and, so, and, and so those are the ones he goes after, um, and they go after him. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, a fascinating, it's a fascinating internal dynamic within the Church when you have conservative bishops so willing to you know, to criticize them, to do more than criticize this pope, um, you know, to, some of them to call for him um, not to be pope. We have that going on, and um, you know, he is to be applauded for his uh, courage in that sense to take them on. But I also think that you know, while you're talking about this, and and um, and you're putting, a, you know, we're putting a lot of emphasis on the conservatives in the Catholic Church. I think that that the Pope is not without power. Okay, he is not without power, and and Catholics, most Catholics, still are more interested in what the Pope has to say. Remember, it is the Pope who is infallible. It is not the bishops who are infallible. So yeah. he. Well, the does bishops have are busy busy paying out billions for sex abuse that they turned a blind eye to. So exactly. So they don't have a leg to stand on. I'm afraid we've run out of time, Francis. I really appreciate it, and I'm glad we spoke. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And again, I've been speaking with Frances Kistling, who's the president of the Center for Health, Ethics, and Social Policy. She teaches at the National Autonomous University of Mexico and serves on the board of the Journal of Feminist Ethics and was the president of Catholics for Choice for 25 years, stepping down in 2007 when she became a Radcliffe Fellow at Harvard. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. 
And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305